Um, so that's all to caveat the fact that what's happening right now, the reefs, is totally unprecedented uh, for the past 10, 20,000 years, the time that we've been alive. Half of coral reefs are dead. Um, that really has happened since the 1970s. And we're currently on track to lose over 90% of reefs within the next 30 years by 2050. You are listening to the Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that warning comes from Sam Teicher, the chief reef officer at Coral Vita, who launched a high-tech coral farm to restore reefs and the life they preserve. And in today's episode, Teicher shares why coral reefs are imperative to life here on Earth, how we can all rally together to stop coral bleaching once and for all, and what responsibilities come with creating a new market. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the real Sam Teicher. Enjoy. Oh, that being said, we will get this show on the road in five, four, three, two, one. Welcome, everyone. To this episode of the Reelers Podcast, I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is the Chief Reef Officer of Coral Vita, Mr. Sam Teicher. Sam, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me on, Kevin. Absolutely. Well, Sam, I think I told you just a little bit before the show. I'm here in San Diego. Getting into surfing a little bit here in San Diego. Done a little, done a little beach break. Done a little point break. One thing I've been staying away from until this episode is the reef break, Sam. I don't want to mess up and fall on some reefs. So I said, not today. We're going to bring on Sam Teicher. He's going to teach us all about reefs and what's going on. So the first question for you today, Sam, is what drew you to reefs? Well, I appreciate being on. And uh, as someone who loves the ocean, you know, it's it's fun to think about all the different ways we can fall into it, whether it's through surfing, boating, uh, and in my case, scuba diving. And so I grew up in Washington, D.C., uh, definitely not a place that's known for its oceanfront views, the Potomac River, not full of coral reefs, but was lucky enough uh, that my parents got my brother and I a scuba certification when we were kids. And when we were fortunate enough to go on a vacation somewhere that wasn't a tropical location, we throw on the wetsuit and the tanks and get underwater. And I've just had that lifelong love for the ocean and didn't grow up imagining I was going to be a coral farmer by stretch of the imagination. And uh, it's, it's still sometimes hard for me to believe that I'm here doing coral reef restoration, that the company needs to exist uh, to do that kind of work. But uh, for all the reasons why it's important, it, it does come back to that um, love that's been with me since childhood, that the ocean and scuba diving is the chance to basically act like an astronaut and visit an alien planet. But it's just one that's right here, uh, right off the shore. So Sam, when I'm out on the surfboard, I'm fascinated by how much life is out there. There's tons of fish. Yesterday, there was dolphins next to us. Uh, mm. There were seals next to us, like swimming 10 feet away. And they're eating fish. And there's fishermen. There's birds flying down. All the life happens to be near the coast. So why, Sam, are coral reefs so vital uh, to marine life here on Earth? That's a great question. So looking at it as a whole... Coral reefs take up less than 1% of the ocean floor, but help support a quarter of all marine life. 25% of life in the ocean, uh, whether they live on coral reefs or nowhere near them, still depends on them in one way or another. 
So one way to think about coral reefs is almost like they're cities. Mm. So the corals, which themselves are animals that have plants living inside of them that make rock as their skeleton. So it's a great sort of run through through all forms of third grade science. They build up uh, these habitats as they grow. And the corals, in addition to serving lots of functions in and of themselves, by growing, by creating these structures, they create habitat. They create nooks and crannies for fish to spawn in, hmm. uh, for turtles to swim through and hunt, to reduce all sorts of uh, changes in terms of erosion that might cause other animals not to be able to live in certain places. And then you work your way up and up the food chain, uh, even fish that live far out to sea where there are no reefs. Um, still depend on reefs being healthy because the things that they eat live on them or spawn on them. So all things considered, they're quite remarkable uh, organisms that really do a lot more than we often sort of take for, uh, for than we often take for granted. I mean, we, we hear about the barrier reefs. We hear about uh, bleaching. Would you mind explaining to our audience uh, what currently is going on with reefs around the world in relationship to the climate warming up and sea levels rising. So coral reefs have been around for millions of years and in sort of their current form for hundreds of thousands of years, there's been times when things happen, reefs die. Uh, But generally speaking, their health and presence has been incredibly stable in the age that we're living in, in particular since the end of the last ice age and the age in which humanity has existed. Um, So that's all to caveat the fact that what's happening right now, the reefs, is totally unprecedented uh, for the past 10, 20,000 years, the time that we've been alive. Half of coral reefs are dead. Um, That really has happened since the 1970s. And we're currently on track to lose over 90% of reefs within the next 30 years, by 2050. There's actually a, a study that came out this week that the Great Barrier Reef, one of the most iconic reefs on the planet, thousands of miles long off the coast of Australia, half of it is dead. So half of all the reefs on the planet are dead, but now these reefs uh, in fairly healthy places by and large um, are dying right in front of our eyes. There's a lot of things that cause that mortality. There's some local factors like uh, pollution or bad development practices or destructive fishing habit uh, habits that people have. But really, when we're looking at it as a whole, um, moving forward and and what's recently happened in places like the Great Barrier Reef is climate change. Corals have a a certain range of temperatures that they thrive in, um, that they're happy. Just like, you know, if we get too hot inside, you get a fever, you can get sick. It's a problem. Um, So if it gets too cold or as we're seeing more and more places, it gets too hot, the corals can get sick and eventually die. So the, the beautiful colors that we see and when we often think of when we look at corals, that's actually a form of algae that lives inside the sort of layer of the the coral on the outside. It's almost like their skin. Um, And the the algae photosynthesizes. They take sunlight, they turn it into sugar, and a lot of the excess sugar feeds the coral. What happens, though, is if it gets too hot, the coral, almost like white blood cells in our own body, is looking around trying to figure out why it's not feeling so good. It often will spell it'll kick out that algae and if the temperatures don't get back to a more normal rate within enough time the coral will actually starve to death and what happens is not only is the algae gone and starts starving but you see the the skeleton of the corals which is usually white it's limestone Hmm. and that's why we get this term bleaching and so coral bleaching is happening 
all around the world. It's only going to happen more and more frequently. And it's a, it's a really tragic and serious problem. Interesting. So what's like your take or your perspective on how to stop or reduce this bleaching? Uh, I know obviously in industries and governments have their role. What's your role in this uh, slowing down of this bleaching to save coral reefs? Well, there's two things that are critical. You sort of hit the nail on the head when you, you mentioned governments and industry and media has a critical role to play in terms of stopping the destruction of reefs. The best thing to do to keep them healthy, let's stop killing them. Let's solve climate change. Let's end pollution and destructive practices. That is above and beyond the best and most important thing that can be done for their health. But as is evident, unfortunately, many of our leaders uh, are not real leaders. Uh, They're really shirking their responsibility when it comes to solving this clear and present danger to everyone everywhere. And so in lieu of action on things like solving climate change, we need to rapidly scale up adaptation solutions. And what I do is coral farming, uh, coral reef restoration, which is one of these adaptation solutions. So much like you can plant trees and through reforestation, a forest can come back to life. Um, I've created a company that integrates breakthrough science where we can grow corals up to 50 times faster, so months instead of decades, strengthen the resilience to climate change threats, and then is deploying a new business model to get people who depend on the values of reefs to pay to restore them uh, in order to basically help preserve reefs for future generations. And so that's, for as far as my responsibility, the, the thing that I'm working on doing right now. So why is uh, sustaining a business like this or or including a for-profit aspect to a business so important to you? And who are some of the customers that you feel need a thriving coral reef uh, in their vicinity? Sure. So to go back earlier when I was talking about the, the value of reef, and I mentioned that they support 25% of marine life. They also sustain the livelihoods of up to 1 billion people around the world in over 100 countries and territories, and conservatively generate $30 billion every year through tourism, fisheries, and coastal protection. So if you're a hotel that relies on snorkel and scuba tourists, if you're a coastal insurer worried about erosion or hurricanes coming through, governments, cruise lines, international development agencies, all of these people and organizations depend on coral reefs being healthy for ultimately their bottom lines or their national interests. So as reefs die, that value is threatened. Coral farming itself has been around for about 20 years in terms of as a means to restore reefs. It's been used before that for the aquarium trade, and then people realized, oh, we can actually grow corals for tanks. What if we grow them to put them back out in the ocean? That process has largely been done by NGOs and scientists. Uh, It's largely been grant-funded, small-scale, and it's shown that in the right conditions, it can work. Mm. I actually worked for an NGO after college living in Mauritius. We worked with the Mauritius Oceanography Institute. We got a small grant from the UN and saw a lagoon that had been abandoned for a decade by fishermen. There was so much life after this small project growing 5,000 corals. Fishermen were setting up their traps 100 yards away. They were returning to that site. But that one grant let us grow 5,000 corals once. And a country like Mauritius, before they had this oil spill in August, needs 5 million corals every year. And Grants and donations just isn't going to cut it. In addition, some other limitations in the the model for restoration. And so my co-founder Gator and I uh, were in grad school. I had more of a policy background and working with NGOs, Gator more from academia. And we were thinking those spaces weren't solving a lot of these pressing environmental challenges at the pace uh, and scale needed. 
and thought about, well, putting aside their ecological wonder, reefs are incredibly valuable. So what if we team up with some of the best coral scientists in the world and then create a business model um, selling reef restoration as a service to those customers I described earlier to unlock previously unattainable funding so that we can do the needed ecosystem scale restoration. And that led to the birth of my company, Coral Vita. It's, it's fascinating. It's meaningful work and it's much needed uh, in today's day and age. There's no doubt about it. Uh, now, what happened with your business during this recession when hospitality goes under, um, when no one's traveling anymore? Uh, did you see a, a drop in sales or drop of interest when that happened? Sales definitely has taken a hit. Um, there's no denying that. We've actually had a, a fairly uh, interesting year. Along with everyone else, 2020 has been tough. But we also, our first farm launched in Grand Bahama uh, in May of last year. Had an incredible summer of success in terms of growing two dozen species of corals compared to three to five that are usually found in projects in the Caribbean. Uh, had the uh, senior executives from Cruise Line showing up our farm saying, we want to market this to our guests. We were negotiating restoration contracts. And then Hurricane Dorian hit our island, mm. which was the strongest storm in recorded history in the Bahamas. I don't recommend staying for Cat 5 hurricanes if you don't have to. Um, we had we got hit with 18 feet of water at our farm, um, which was well past the 100-year flood event, uh, almost tripled the 100-year flood event. And so got a firsthand perspective, though, on, on just how important coral reefs are because we also saw them and other ecosystems slowing down wave energy enough to actually save people's lives in, in parts of the island. Got the farm up and running again in March, just in time for COVID. So um, we were fortunate enough where we had raised an initial seed round um, that not only does rebuild the farm, but have enough runway to keep going um, with the slowdown. And then the government of the Bahamas actually gave us exemption to keep running the farm because we were taking care of live animals. And in spite of everything, uh, the clear recognition that really coral reefs matter more than ever. And so although we weren't getting any ecotourism dollars, um, and those sort of restoration contracts slowed down, we still were seeing expressions of interest from people who didn't have a lot of money to spend on this type of work because why are people going to go to the Bahamas when the country opens up if there are no beautiful fish to see or even if you just want to go fishing um, because the reefs are dead or buy property there if uh, the storm surges are coming through and crushing homes because you don't have a healthy reef which reduces wave energy on average by 97% in front of your property. And so in spite of how bad things are, one, we're fortunate enough to be in a good enough position with our sort of investors backing us. Mm. Um, two, still seeing interest not only in the Bahamas, but our plan is eventually to launch farms all around the world. And we're still talking to people from the British Virgin Islands to Fiji and Australia. And then third, we also did pivot a little bit. And so one of the things that we're getting ready to launch uh, around Giving Tuesday this year is an online adopt a coral campaign. And so the idea is even if you can't come to the farm in person, uh, if you're sitting in San Diego, if you're sitting in Topeka, if you're sitting in Nairobi, if you're inspired by what we're doing and you want to help restore the reefs, you can pay to adopt a coral. And so we can continuously generate revenue to support our business until the world starts coming back to normal. Fascinating. Now, Sam, if you go to any impact conference, they're going to be talking about measurements. How do you measure impact? Now, you've explained to us how vital coral is to uh, an economy like the Bahamas. Uh, when a hurricane comes, it can slow down the wave power 
uh, people need the, um, to go fishing. They need the, the, the life. They need tourism. That is really what funds that uh, nation. And, and when they come back, it's really essential. Now, how does one measure impact when I would assume coral takes a long time to grow? Like, how do you justify that? What are your investors saying right now? It's a good and important question. So there's a, a range of different metrics that we measure. I won't list them all off, but they're sort of in social, environmental, and financial. Um, on the social side, there's a big part of our model that ultimately these reefs matter most for the people who live there. In this case, for our first farm, for the Bahamian people. I'm from D.C. Um, I don't have a cultural heritage stake in these reefs as much as I love them. And so, one, we employ local as much as possible. We want to build uh, local capacity building into the work that we do. Our farms also are on land. That lets us scale better. We can potentially supply an entire nation's reach from one site. It lets us incorporate the methods to grow the corals faster or control the conditions uh, for the, the water in the tanks to strengthen their resiliency against threats. But also it's more accessible. And so in addition to being tourism attractions in and of themselves, where people can pay to visit the farm or go out and plant corals with our teams, there are also education centers for students and community members. So we'll, we'll track the social side of things. Environmentally, it's not just a matter of how many corals get outplanted. Um, you could sort of pat yourself on the back and say, I planted 10,000 corals, but how many of them actually survived? What were the changes in marine life diversity and abundance in sort of the before and after from our restoration work? What's the diversity of the species that we've planted? Did we reduce wave energy? There's a whole range of things that we're tracking. Um, corals also make babies. It's kind of analogous to pollination. Um, did the corals we plant also reproduce? Um, and some of these uh, metrics can be collected right away. Some of these are collected over years. But again, one of the big breakthroughs is this ability for us to grow corals in months instead of decades, which unlocks species diversity so that a lot of the things that normally would take decades to measure or even really just wouldn't be possible to do we now can more rapidly assess uh, and take action on. And then obviously financially, um, the, the more direct things is just how much, how much revenue did we generate? How many impressions did we make? Um, but also w one of the things that's uh, still a, a work in progress, but we're talking to some environmental economists and others about is how can we demonstrate by restoring a reef or by setting up a coral farm that has larger macroeconomic value to the surrounding community, property owners, residents, all that kind of stuff, because that's another sort of thing that I think can be really impactful. I really like how you're hiring the employees of the local areas as well. And I feel like a decentralized approach is one that is much needed. So I'm interested, though, because can you deploy your concept in different areas? Like, for instance, if I'm a, a regenerative farming, like my model might be a little bit different in Argentina versus in the Dominican Republic. Can your model be replicated in different areas? And what's your approach when you go to a different territory? Short answer is yes. Uh, it is turnkey and scalable. There obviously are a few different things we have to navigate, but the way that we grow corals the general features of the farm. Again, it's on land. Imagine like an aquaculture facility. You can do that anywhere. Um, the methods, as I was saying, to grow corals can be applied anywhere with the, the native species in the, the regions that we work. You do have to navigate local regulatory issues, different economic markets. We find the right partners. So there are sort of things that are give and take. But by and large, what we're doing in the Bahamas um, we're confident works in other places. And, and that's the truth is we're not the only people doing coral farming. 
we're the only people as far as we knew doing commercial land-based coral farming for restoration, but there's a host of amazing people um, from Tahiti to Kenya to Dubai to Mexico to Belize, really around the world, already doing coral farming. So we do know it works. Um, and yeah, we, we have to think a bit further ahead. Right now we're focused on the Bahamas. You can't take corals across borders and put them in the wild. So our model is building farms in every country eventually. It's a, it's a big goal. Um, whether we take a franchise approach, whether we build and operate every farm ourselves, we'll see. Um, but we are starting to build out that pipeline for the future from a customer, investor, partner, and, and community side of, uh, of the business. Oh, with so many stakeholders, like you just mentioned, at play here, like what type of concerted effort do you need from uh, municipalities, from um, corporations, like you said, hospitality groups, the people in the community? It's like, what's worked for you and like, what's a way to really pull everyone together? It's, uh, it's a tough one. I mean, part of what we're doing is, you know, we're not just creating a company. We're not just creating a mission driven company, but we're also creating one as we effectively build a market. So there's a huge education component, which is an additional burden one might say, but it's also a huge opportunity and it's an exciting one. It's almost like we get a sandbox to play in. We're like, we think this is the way things should be. No one else is doing this, so let's let's go for it and see how people react. And so, I, I guess a way of considering that is, um, you know, Gator and I have many different hats. Um, my background was in poli poli sci; that's why I studied in college. Um, I had the opportunity to intern doing climate adaptation policy at the White House. I worked for a group called the Global Island Partnership, which is a coalition of island nations and partners around the world advancing sustainability and conservation. Um, tapping into those networks, though. That background, even though I'm not the coral scientist on the team, as I'm working on the marketing and the business development, being able to have relationships already in place and just continually growing with heads of state, uh, senior regulatory officials, thought leaders in ocean conservation. I mean, I think that's one of our biggest strengths, actually, is this network that we already have um, with the people that are are implementing, funding, um, developing ideas for or approving these big ocean conservation and adaptation projects. So, you know, every day is definitely different. Um, but that's, I think, a really fun part of the job. And again, you asked me how I got into core farming. I mean, when I was growing up, I didn't think I was going to work on climate change. I thought I was going to be doing education reform. I thought I was going to go to diplomacy. I thought I was going to do many things. And, and suddenly I actually kind of get to do diplomacy in a sense as I'm an entrepreneur doing a mission-driven business. And um, it's an interesting space to operate from, too, because it is different. People, I think, tend to react positively to social entrepreneurs who, you know, in, in particular, are, like, thinking about how do we integrate the local community? How do we ensure we're doing things in an ecologically sound way? How do we solve a problem for you that's a very difficult, complex one that requires coordinating a lot of different parties and moving parts? Um, so it's a... I don't know if that fully answered your question, but... That's basically one of the things that gets me excited to wake up every day. It's an open-ended question. I was just curious. I mean, it's it's a really difficult thing to do. I'm just really glad that you guys are actually doing something about this and bringing people together. And it seems like you guys you guys have a movement behind this. Now, many social entrepreneurs will journey to a new place and they'll experience something that has a profound effect on them and uh, something that aligns with their career. Was that in Mauritius? What? really in your career did you experience that may have been a turning point in your life if there was one Mauritius definitely played a role I mean that was the first time I did reef restoration saw a reef come back to life 
was inspired by the people working in the field, but also realized this small scale grant funded model isn't going to cut it. And that was definitely a genesis of Coral Vita. I'd say, you know, lifelong love for the ocean, going back to scuba diving as a kid, lifelong love for nature. People don't often realize Rock Creek Park is the biggest urban forest in America. It's in the middle of D.C. Um, we're near the Shenandoah. So having nature be a part of my life is always a thing. But I went into college, as I said, thinking about national security education. But I ended up taking a class on global environmental history. Uh, and it was, it was basically an archaeology class. And there was a, a lesson our, our professor was um, sharing with us about an ancient settlement in Syria that was faced with a multi-year drought. Hmm. And the villagers were faced with a choice. They could either adapt to the new conditions, they could move or they could die out. And they failed to adapt. They stayed put and the settlement vanished um, until it was sort of discovered thousands of years later. And for me, that was a sort of aha moment of like, well, we've got one planet. Um, you don't have to be a tree hugger to realize from a jobs, from a clean water, from a national security, from a public health, from an economic development perspective, we need healthy ecosystems to continue thriving and surviving. And if the planet uh, and the systems, the current climate gets thrown out of whack, I mean, Earth is going to keep spinning. It'll be fine. Well, who's really going to suffer is humanity because we've come to evolve alongside and grow dependent on this climatic system. And so we can't move to another planet, at least not anytime soon, as, as hard as you know, Elon Musk and others are working on that. Um, we have to adapt or we're going to suffer the consequences. And so that was a huge aha moment for me. And that's actually what led me to really shift my studies towards climate change, which ultimately led me to apply for grad school, gap year, before grad school in Mauritius. And now here I am doing Coral Vita. Uh, Sam, who do you think like the biggest contributors are to uh, coral collapse, uh, whether it's pollution? I, I'm sure it's a lot. You mentioned the temperature rising. I'm sure that's a lot to do with a lot of different things. But like to you, like who who are a couple of the main contributors to uh, pollution and coral destruction? Uh, negligent, selfish, greedy and ignorant leaders in government business and the media. Um, as simple as that, you know, we have individual responsibility to some degree. I can do better in terms of the choices I make as far as what I eat, where I travel, I could put on better reef safe sunblock, but I, I think it's a false narrative that's often thrown at people that really it's on individuals to make these big changes when the vast majority of carbon emissions come from a very select group of companies and countries. Um, the science is clear. We've got experts in national security, public health, uh, you know, economic uh, prosperity saying climate change is real. We have to act. We are already suffering from it. And there are people that would rather let the world burn uh, than see their profit margins diminish slightly. Um, and those are the people who, who bear the most responsibility for not just what's happened to coral reefs, but to really people, to wildlife and to other ecosystems all around the world. When you see an oil spill that happens to impact a coral reef or just animal life in general, uh, are these companies held accountable? And how does one hold a company accountable for the, their impact on ecosystems and coastal communities? I wish I had a great answer for that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, they, they're, no, usually they're not. I mean, interesting. 
people are still dealing with the the results of the Exxon Valdez and what was that was before I was born. Um, I mean, it's heartbreaking to see uh, anywhere. But you know, I I have friends from when I lived in Mauritius who are still working night and day trying to clean up the oil spill that happened in August, and that's going to be around for for decades. Um, and actually, in Grand Bahama, there was an oil spill on our island in Hurricane Dorian. The the roofs of several massive storage tanks blew off um, and there was a huge spill across the island. Now, thankfully, the spill went northward towards the, the land. Um, and you can sort of see that in satellite photos. And whatnot. I, I actually, I basically, um, as soon as the water receded enough for us to be running relief missions out to eastern Grand Bahama had been really cut off and hit hard. We were bringing water, seeing if people could go to the hospital. We were, I think, the first car to make it from the capital city of the island, Freeport, out to that east. We basically, I just, not because I was trying to, like, say, screw you to the oil companies, but we drove past it. I think my video was the one that kind of made this spill go viral in many ways because we were just driving through oil slicks. But um, several people that were flying uh, relief missions took photos of, of oil slicks out in the sea. Um. It's a lot harder to clean up oil when it's in the ocean. Uh, that company uh, made it very clear that they, they, you know, look at the satellite images. The oil spill went north on the ground. It, it's not spilling out in the ocean. But we also had, as I said, this massive storm surge that hit our farm. In some places on the island, it's 22 feet. And if it was able to lift up houses and people and uproot entire regions of forest, I think it probably could have lifted some oil off the ground. Um, and they didn't. They, they they took no responsibility and claimed there was no oil out at sea. And as far as I know, nothing's happened to that. So I unfortunately don't have a good answer for you on that question. But we need to figure out a better way to hold these companies um, responsible. Damn, that's tough to hear. It's really difficult to hear. Now, you mentioned earlier that you were in the Bahamas during Hurricane Dorian, during this Category, four, five? Category five. 5 hurricane. So I, I have some friends that do live in the USVI, and they were there for the Hurricane Irma and Maria. Now, explain to our audience what that does. What, well, first, what it was like during that experience. I think I've heard some crazy stories. And then, two, what that does to a small island's community and economy. So to explain what it's like, I've been actually uh, the line that our, uh, one of our coral scientists, Joe Oliver, he's from North Carolina, he's from Wilmington. That was his seventh hurricane. He was born on a hurricane. I probably shouldn't be near him when a hurricane's coming at this point. But he said, as a scientist, it was the most incredible experience of his life. And as a human being, it was the scariest. Hmm. We had 225-mile-an-hour winds. Uh, 80% of the island was underwater. And the thing that was also, I think, most striking, there was a confluence of so many events that made Dorian as bad as it was, this was my first hurricane. And what people had sort of said to me was, look, it's going to be four to eight hours of hell and then it'll move on and you sort of pick up the pieces. And for reasons that are becoming more and more clear as sort of with climate change, they actually, it, it can slow down storms in addition to make them more intense. Dorian stopped moving. Um, we had five high tides in the middle of a king tide. So there was already higher water levels as the storm literally just sat on top of us for 48 hours. And so it was like having a train outside or a house running for two days straight, um, not knowing if the water was going to come. I mean, our farm, 10 minutes away from our house, 18 feet of storm surge. My home, we had no flooding. Um, 
we somehow had internet the whole time on our phones. We were in big WhatsApp groups. We knew people were fleeing onto their roofs and playing GPS pins, asking for rescues on jet skis and whoever could come save them. And it was, it was awful. It was really a terrible experience. And, and we were the lucky ones. I mean, there were some, there was on our Island, you know, I think three dozen people died, although they don't count uh, bodies until they've been, recovered after a few years. So there's still hundreds of people that I think are missing, maybe even thousands. Um, so it was tough. Um, and the Island had just really started getting its feet back under it in March when COVID came through. So you've got people whose homes are gone, whose lives are dealing with you know, mental health issues and trauma. And then obviously, um, the, the business takes a huge hit too, especially in a lot of these Island nations that are dependent on tourism. And a lot of people, I think, have this uh, thought. It happened in the U.S. Virgin Islands. It happened in, in um, Antigua and Barbuda after some of these big storms. Oh, they're damaged. I don't want to go on vacation there. A lot of times these people actually need you to come spend money there because that's how they they rebuild. And so, I, I mean, Puerto Rico, USBI in some places, they're still rebuilding from these storms. And you're dealing with these storms in India this year Got and Bangladesh got one of the strongest cyclones ever in Japan and Fiji. So it's... You, we're, I'm American. I live in the Bahamas. We often think about the Caribbean um, and obviously what's been happening in like the Gulf of Mexico in the U.S., but it, this, is a, this is a big problem. And this is, again, where having healthy coral reefs as well as mangrove forests and others are key because they act like seawalls. So if they're healthy, people's lives and property and infrastructure will be protected. Now, how does that actually work? Because I was in the opinion that coral like reef breaks are the best breaks. So the, when the momentum of the waves coming through is going to hit the coral, it's going to cause a nice little riptide. How does that actually work under, like underneath the water, how it decreases the velocity of the momentum of the wave? Uh, I'm not going to give you the best answer because I'm not a hydrologist, but effectively it, it just dissipates a lot of the energy. So okay. we have coral reefs in the Bahamas, obviously, but we don't have wave breaks. So a part of it has to do with just the bathymetry and, uh, how that area works. That's why there are some places that epic wave breaks with coral reefs and others have coral reefs and there's no waves at all. Um, but it, effectively, it, it absorbs a lot of the wave action. Um, some of the reefs have, you know, passages and holes so the water kind of goes through. By the time it gets back up, it's slowed down a lot. It goes out sideways. But the further it is offshore and the the um, higher the reef is relative to the um, height of the sort of sea level, the better job it's going to do in just slowing down and dissipating that wave energy, not necessarily at the reef, which is why you might have a break, but before it gets to shore. Um, so we actually had another hurricane come through uh, in August this year, Isaias, and you, you thankfully it was a cat one, didn't do too much damage, all things considered. Um, so you could actually go out and sort of see it. I wasn't going to stand on the beach during Dorian. Um, you could see offshore, and we have videos of this, waves smashing against the reef like a mile off the shoreline. But standing on the beach, there was some wave action, but it wasn't nearly as bad as out to sea. And so that's what they basically do. They act as these barriers. And, and again, I mentioned mangroves briefly before. Just as one analogy, during Dorian, one of the islands that's off the coast of Grand Bahama, it's a little key called Sweeting's Key, one of the most idyllic places I think on earth. And we would go there a lot. And we knew some of the folks who lived out there, they got the eye of the storm and we got there four or five days after. I mean, it was absolute utter devastation, but everyone was alive. Um, like the 30 people that were there were all alive. Um, 
And it was, it didn't make any sense. And we asked person after person, like, how are you still here? And not knowing that we were doing something with you know, the environment at all, they pointed to the mangrove forests around them and saying, those trees uh, along the water's edge or in the water slowed down that wave energy enough for us to get to higher ground, to get to the second floor, to get to our neighbor's house. And meanwhile, 20 minutes away in McLeanstown, most of the mangroves are gone. Buildings built almost the same way. And there were dozens of deaths there. Um, so it was a very stark view in terms of just how important these ecosystems are for all of us. So Sam, we've talked about hurricanes, uh, commercial farming, pollution. At scale, what do you think your organization can do in terms of impact in saving these coastal communities? Well, there's a few different ways of thinking about that. So one is obviously we global network of coral farms in every country with reefs around the world. That is the big goal for us, where we are growing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of corals from each of these farms. And for perspective, the biggest coral farm ever was funded by a grant that expired. They grew 40,000 corals once. So we want to have farms that are growing more than double the biggest project ever year after year that's financed in a sort of sustainable way. Hmm. So having that impact, being able to work with other NGOs doing reef restoration, the private sector, governments, local communities, scientists, building out this team effort to do it. That's where we want to go. But I'm also hopeful, um, one, that more people will come into the space. We can't be the only ones doing commercial reef restoration. Um, two, that this also will jumpstart uh, a restoration economy of sorts so that people are doing mangrove restoration at scale, seagrass restoration, terrestrial forest restoration in ways that actually not only have the impact that's needed for wildlife, um, for the ecosystem services, for the tourism, fisheries, coastal protection benefits, and for the communities that depend on them, but is also, again, done in a way that is financially sustainable, that has the ability to sustain the ecosystems that protect us all, um, while also just not being reliant on a financial model of grants and donations that unfortunately um, is broken right now and, and doesn't cut it for the challenges we're facing. So. To be able to see reefs alive for future generations, um, to have a successful business, um, to have these communities still thriving alongside the reefs that they depend on, and then to see this whole restoration economy emerge, that's what I, I'm hopeful we can be a part of. Sam, I opened up the show telling you about how many crazy people we have on the show, right? Crazy people that just want to change the world, that are solving these problems through a for-profit solution. Uh, last week on the show, we had someone in agriculture it's the most it's it's the it's the worst problem out there we need to solve this because 70% of smallholder farmers consist of 70% of the world's poverty yet produce 70% of the world's food uh the next one is water we're in a water crisis no one's talking about this i'm going to run seven marathons in seven weeks in seven countries to raise awareness about this water shortage crisis that's going on now we have on someone with corals where it's impacting 1 billion people around the world and 50% of coral reefs are dead how do you prioritize something like this? And what is your message to people listening to this that really want to help? It's overwhelming. I appreciate that. I mean, this is a space I work in and I'm, I'm overwhelmed. So for people that are just learning about it or getting worried about it, I can definitely appreciate concern and a sense of, if not helplessness, just how do I, how do I manage all these things? And I think, one, it's important to still remain hopeful. I mean, it's a daunting task that we're faced, again, just in the context of coral reefs with 90% of reefs dead within the next 30 years. 
But in spite of the odds, I still believe we can create a better planet. We can build a better society. We can transform our economy in a way that looks out for people and ecosystems that promotes, you know, prosperity and comfortable living. Um, so remaining hopeful is key. It's not on all of us as individuals uh, to be responsible. I mean, I think where we have the most influence, there obviously are the individual actions in terms of what you eat and what you uh what you spend your money on and actually is that what you spend your money on, I think support companies that are doing the right thing. There are companies that are good out there that aren't damaging the planet that aren't killing reefs. There are ones that clearly are. Um, and at the same time, as you sort of vote with your wallet vote, uh, if you live in a democracy, um, I, it may sound cheesy, but vote in people that don't adhere to stupidity and, um, selfishness. I mean, it's, it's frankly disappointing to see the current Supreme court hearings where the nominee is as someone as well read as she is saying she hasn't really read about climate change and she's not sure if it's a fact, it's a fact. Um, we need to vote in people who act on climate change and then also hold them accountable. Um, so I, I'd say that's really the biggest thing. And then yeah, you know, ask around, see what are good organizations and companies and people who are working on problems besides just coral reefs. Um, and if you're able to donate, great. If you're able to just share the word about what they're doing, cool. If you can alert your elected officials about that work so they can get better connected and, and support. Uh, there's a number of different ways you can help. I, I would say the responsibility, again, is not on all of us as individuals to carry the world like Atlas. Um, do what you can. Make sure you have time for fun and to enjoy these, get out in nature, um, and then hold the companies and governments uh, and, and, again, leaders in media, too, uh, who are responsible for affecting change, hold them responsible so that they actually act the way they should. Sam, it's great advice. I'm sure we've all learned a lot today on this episode. Lots of leadership lessons that we all can take away. So, Sam, let's bring this home. What is your definition of a real leader? A real leader is someone who is willing to put themselves on the front lines, to lead from the front, but also to learn from others, uh, to build coalitions, to recognize that even if there's a good idea, the timing might not be right, uh, or the way it's being thought out is is actually the best way. Um, so, you know, having physical courage is great, but having moral courage courage also matters. You know, on the lines of something that Mark Twain said that I think is very true. And yeah, a real leader um, looks out for other people uh, as they try and build a better world through their own actions. Well said, Sam. I appreciate you coming on the Real Leaders podcast. So, on behalf of everyone listening uh, for Sam Teicher, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, put yourself on the front lines, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Sam. Thanks a lot, Kevin. You good people for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Sam Teicher. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And folks, if you didn't know by now, all of these episodes are streamed live to our new Crowdcast channel. That's right. All you need to do to ask questions and join live is click the link in the bio and RSVP for an upcoming interview with a new real leader. Also, folks, if you haven't yet left a review, please, I beg of you, scroll all the way down to the bottom give us a five-star review and let us know what you like about the show. 
Just want to give a quick shout out to Sam and all the work that Coral Vita is doing. I mean, can you imagine a world with commercial coral farms that helps bring life back to the coastal communities? We're a community of crazies here, folks. And as you know, the Realtors podcast adopts crazies. So if you know someone who's doing something crazy and trying to save the world, such as that, right? Email us at b at real-leaders.com. That's B-E at real-leaders.com. Send us who you want to have on the show and we will reach out to them. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and always keep it real.